and welcome to our history here at the Bristol Media Room at Busy Park. My name is Tony DeBolfo. Today's guest has an extraordinary life story to tell. One of Australia's stolen generation who would be cruelly deprived of family, of custom and of way of life. But football would take him on an incredible journey from Roland's native mission in the Western Australian port city of Bunbury to the big smoke in Perth and ultimately to the big time in Melbourne as one of the great Carlton players of his generation. By the time he put on the number five dark navy blue Guernsey for the first time in the opening round of 1969, our guest, then 24, had already forged a handsome reputation on the other side of the Nullarbor in more than 100 senior appearances for East Perth, for whom he was best and fairest player in 1966. His prodigious talents were recognised by many clubs, most notably North Melbourne and Carlton, which passionately vied for his services. In the end, the good guys won the day, but at some cost to Sid, he was forced to sit out the 1968 season until the West Australian League granted him a clearance. That cost him a place in Carlton's 1968 Premiership team, and he famously spent the particular afternoon running messages for the then-coach Ronald Dale Barassi. The heartbreak of not being part of a famous Premiership team, Carlton's first in 21 years, only strengthened Sid's resolve as supporters came to appreciate his prodigious football abilities. Ultimately, he was part of two of the club's most famous grand final triumphs of 1970 and 72. In all, he represented Carlton in 136 senior matches between 1969 and 76, proudly wearing the number five Guernsey, and his story transcends the great Australian game. He is a great Australian story, period. And to share it with us now for our history, we welcome Sid Jackson. Sid, lovely to see you back at Carlton. Um, lovely to be here too, Tony, and particularly being interviewed in the Bruce Deal room. <laughs> Sid, it's um, magnificent that you're here. Um, I know you, you drift between Melbourne and uh, Western Australia, Perth, and you know, you've spent a lot of time back in Bunbury. Could I perhaps begin by asking you what you're doing in Bunbury these days? Yeah, I still have a big attachment to, uh, to Bunbury, particularly the southwest of uh, Perth, um, where I was brought up. Uh, Roland's mission was just nestled in between Collie and, and the Bunbury itself in the valley. And uh, uh, there's a property, when I was there, called the native uh, Roland's Mission, then it became um, uh, Roland's Mission, and it became uh, uh, Roland's Children's Home. And um, now it's called uh, um, um, Kiaka. Kiorka Incorporation. So um, uh, I'm back there you know, periodically to help uh, with, with some of my uh, ex-mission kids that we call ourselves uh, at my age uh, uh, on a committee that um, overseeing the property now. It's 800 acres, a couple of streams and a river running past it. And we've uh, uh, formed a, a program called Respect that uh, we run programs with, as I said, uh, and also produce uh, um, our fruit and veggies and uh, livestock on, on the property as well. And that must be particularly for rewarding for you to be a part of such a fantastic project. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's very nice to um, go back and uh, catch up with a lot of my uh, my old, um, old friends that uh, were brought up on the place with me. Uh, we, we formed a committee, as I said, and... Uh, we oversee the place uh, in in, in uh, all sorts of areas of uh, hospitality, um, um, uh, training, and uh, and 
running the place generally just to uh, you know become self-supporting uh, and it's a good tourism area um, we're hoping to get to attract a lot of people coming in and out of there for tourism and they just uh, generally uh, and reflecting out there and enjoying themselves and for the old people that live used to live there uh, to come back and uh, you know reflect again Sid, there are many, many Carlton supporters that will be listening in that remember you as the great Carlton footballer, and yet I suspect there's a lot of people that perhaps don't know the half of your story. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about about your early years and, and what happened to you? Yeah, sure. Um, look, I, I, as I said, I talked about the mission just a moment ago. That's where I was actually spotted as a kid. Uh, we were there with another probably 65 other other kids, girls and boys, but um, we uh, we played footy all day, every day, uh, with no shoes on. We had two or three footballs, and we used to kick the hell out of those for all day. And I think that's what built up our skills. And um, and um, then f- from our school days, we used to play at the local schools around around the area, Harvey, Brunswick, and and Capel, and all those uh, towns around. We used to um, we used to uh, you know. Um, <laughs> flogged most of those those uh, school groups around those towns, towns and um, we became noticed that way. And uh, from there, we um, I think uh, that uh, South Bunbury came down and uh, uh, South Bunbury spotted me and asked me to play for the South Bunbury Football Club. So um, I ended up my first game there with a couple of other kids from the mission, and I was um, invited to stay with uh, and. Uh, get a job and work in Bunbury as a carpenter joiner through a fellow called Dr Manier who uh, was the president of the South Bunbury Footy Club and uh, he and his wife took me in. He already had two sons so he ended up having three. So, And I'm still there as the, the eldest son so <laughs> I was only there last week and stayed at their place again and um, he was, he was as I said, the president. But um, he sort of nurtured me through there uh, and made the connection from um, South Bunbury for myself uh, through a bloke called Hex Trempel, who was uh, president of the East Perth Football Club. And uh, that's uh, how I uh, ended up playing for East Perth. And uh, that's where I met great people like Graham Polly Farmer and Ted Kilmurray and the big bad Mel Brown. <laughs> now, if I can go back a little bit, earlier, you know, to the very, very early stages of your life, um, you were actually taken away by formal arrest where you're under the, um, under the rules of the day when you were three. Um, you were separated from your family for some yeah. period of time and you would get to meet your mum and dad only two or three times before they died. Yeah. Um, you know, that must have been particularly difficult for you. Yeah, that was pretty common in those days. It was the authorities with the with the police and the uh, and the state and federal governments at the time that uh, had the policy of uh, it's f- for their own good and um, and uh, had a white Australian policy that uh, separated the uh, the full blood kids from uh, from the half caste. So uh, we were rounded up uh, one day um, and put on a truck out the back of Leonora, which is um, probably three hundred kilometres out the back of. Um, Kalgoorlie and over a series of uh, three or four days we ended up down uh, down south and uh, we called to a sorting out place and uh, the sisters were put in two other institutions and I was put in uh, into the Rollins mission that I was just talking about And when did you finally, when were you finally reunited with your family? 
Well, uh, I'd, I'd forgotten I'd had uh, sisters by that time. I was three years old, and uh, the brother and the sisters I sort of grew up with, the, the kids that were in the mission with me. So um, when I was told uh, that uh, the, the, uh, I had two sisters, they wanted to see me, and uh, that was about 20 years later, of course. But um, you know, one was in the wandering mission, and one went to another institution in town. And, it, and I was at Roland, but when I met 20 years later, that um, yeah, it was a very... Um, Different feeling against it as being a brother and sisters, so it was quite a, quite a strange feeling. But um, it took me twenty years before I saw them. So um, anyway, that was a good reunion. It, it was a great reunion. I guess there were a lot of young kids in your situation that, that wouldn't have even got that opportunity. No, no, a lot of a lot of the kids um, when they left the property, the, the Rollins Mission, they um, they did they were issued with a, a bit of money and a. And a Bank book, and um, uh, got some menial, you know, menial jobs outside, uh, domestic or labouring, or working across the road, the river from the farms, on the, uh, you know, picking potatoes and things like that. So um, uh, they never knew where they'd come from, and they had no um, way of uh, finding out where they'd come from. People didn't have birth certificates, and uh, and it, even struggling today to find out where, where they actually come from, and just even trying to get a driver's licence and getting stat decks to find out where they come from. That's some of them found out that way, but a lot of them still hasn't haven't found out where they come from. Sid, I spoke some time ago to the great Ian Stewart, who who grew up in an orphanage under different circumstances to you. But I remember him saying that um, he used to kick a football to himself and handball a footy to himself. You know, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week in the in the in the place because he knew that football was his his only ticket out of there. Was, was it a similar situation for yourself? Oh, I, I didn't. No, I didn't think it was that way. But um, um, I think when I was given the opportunity and invited to play for South Bunbury, that a lot of people was backing me and the coach and Doctor Manier, who was the the mayor of the town at the time, plus um, the president of the footy club I was, I was at. So um, I um, I thought I had to offer something back, and I think that was my motivation, you know, to stay there and, uh, you know, do well with the club and the support they've given me. So it worked out both ways for me. So uh, that's how I handle it. In... 1963, your first year at East Perth, Sid, you actually emerged as equal leader in the Sandover medal for best and fairest player in Western Australia. Unfortunately, you were ruled ineligible due to suspension. What mm. actually happened and who was the player well, involved? I was, somebody was coming towards me. I think it was a Don Marinko, a Marinko um, Ray Marinko, I think it was, yeah. But the sun was in my eyes. I was trying to take a mark, but my, my hands apparently made contact with his head, but I couldn't see that because I couldn't see him as well. <laughs> I was just trying to take a mark, but the umpire said I made contact with his, with his head and I was, I was reported, so I missed out on that on that medal. What were you suspended for? Was it one match, two matches? or uh, One match, yeah. One match. So obviously that's a regret that you still have, yeah, you know? I, I still see that I, uh, you know, uh, I, I took it the other way. I thought it was um, a bit of prejudice coming into there um, and... Uh, we weren't very favourable umpires. To, weren't very favourable to uh, indigenous players in those days. I can tell you that. I wonder if retrospectively they could, you know, look at it again and maybe award you the medal. Well, yeah, well, worth a try, isn't it? I mean, fifty years, Sid. Fifty years. Well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
did you always want to come to Melbourne to play league football? No, no, it was just a, a progress of, um, you know, support from um, uh, being noticed, I suppose, like from, from the mission to, uh, to South Bunbury Footy Club, uh, from recognised through a contact uh, from South Bunbury to East Perth and Hex Trimple uh, had a contact uh, uh, and with the Carlton Footy Club and Carlton played over there one year and um, spotted me playing so um, I think Ron Barassi asked if I wanted to come over to uh, to Carlton to play so that, that was how it prog- progressed that uh, I happened to come over here. Was it always going to be Carlton? I think North Melbourne was interested also. North was interested, they, they, they were offering me a little bit of money but uh, I think some good people behind me and um, and I didn't want to disappoint them by going to another club, so I reneged on that one. That was a good but decision. the money was good. Uh, the offer was good, but I, I couldn't take it. And, of course, Graham Farmer was already making an impression in VFL football. What influence was Polly on, on you? Uh, huge influence. Um, there's a fellow called the Ruck Rover, Ted Calamari, an Aboriginal person that played alongside Polly at East Perth, and they were... My idols, along with Mel Brown, um, who I played with, and uh, huge influence on me. And um, and uh, I said, well, if they can do that, I can do it as well. So um, I think that was part of my motivation of having a go. And I, I mentioned in the opening that unfortunately you were frustrated initially in not being able to get a clearance. Um, that must have been a difficult period for you, that first twelve months sitting out. Yeah, it, it was. Um, I was already here. Um, Invitation of um, Carlton, um, uh, and just waiting for a clearance from the, the Western Australian League. But um, I think Bert Thorny and myself were already here at the time, and uh, there was other players already moved, or, or too many were coming over in the preceding years. So uh, when they knew that Thorny and I and a couple of others were here already, um, they uh, for all read uh, Fred Fred Book, who was already president of my footy club, uh, who was also, you know, uh, chairman of the league at the time, said, no, uh, uh, we won't give them a clearance. They have, we'll put a, put a poaching rule in. Um, they're poaching too many of our good players and uh, uh, we had to stand out in 68, 69. What were first impressions of Princess Park and the players that were here? Because you had men of the like of, likes of Nichols, Jesselenko, Brent Croswell, Barassi, of course. What were the impressions when you walked into the place? Oh, it's just huge. Um, um, I uh, I got a lot of confidence from confidence from uh, given some a lot of encouragement from uh, Ron Brassy and, and the committee at the time um, and uh, Jack Rout, chairman of selectors, um, and uh, of course our our secretary. Um, uh, they looked after me pretty well, made me very comfortable and welcome here. So uh, it made it easy for me to fit in with the players and. Um, do what I know best is just to play football, so it fitted in all very well for me, and uh, it was a great club to come to. And where were you put up when you arrived? Where were you living? I think I was put in uh, straight across the road here. Um, there's a motel across the road from uh, across the tram line, and I was there for a, for a week before they sorted me out, and then um, I'm not quite sure, but I was put in in Carlton somewhere where I was put in with a fellow called Paul Hurston and um, Ian Nichols, who... Um, who played a few games here, uh, and uh, that was over in Carlton in uh, Drummond Street somewhere. Um, was it a difficult decision for you to make the move? Were you, you know, it's a long way across back back in those days. Was it was it 
you know, did you have any concerns about the shift? No, I knew I was going. Um, uh, we had a big party a couple of days before, and um, then I uh, it took a few more hours to fly here. <laughs> in those days, and the plane was called the DC nine. In those days, and it. Um, Seemed a hell of a long way away to come over, you know, all that way. But um, I was made quite welcome when I got here in uh, six or seven in the morning, and uh, taken it out on the town straight away, and uh, <coughs> with some of the players, and uh, it was a long two days for me. But um, <laughs> that's the way I was uh, made welcome here and settled in. But um, they made me welcome; it was fantastic, and uh, you know, uh, the rest is history. The rest is certainly history. Now. I mentioned, Sid, you know, you, you were runner to Barassi through 68, so you were in a position to see how Barassi really operated more than most. What, what you know, stood out for you in the way Barassi went about his coaching? Well, I thought it was good that I did that piece of running for him in 68, but um, um, he um, just saw the way he, uh, you know, operated and um, and uh, made some changes on... on and, and uh, who he targeted on the ground, and uh, he seemed to um, go for the, the top players. The, I don't know what was the method of frightening the top players that made the uh, the uh, the other players uh, step up to the mark as well. But um, you know that's what I what I found out about Brass, and um, and I said he's, he's other guys are not, aren't playing as well, and he's having a go at these guys that are still playing well. And uh, I guess he had those uh, guys as generals that weren't. You know, directing these um, players uh, alongside them as well as they should have been. Did he um, um, ever tee off at you, and how did you handle that if he did? Oh, always, um, he always had a go at me because um, um, he was frustrated with me because I knew that um, I, I was playing well enough, and uh, but if I made a mistake, he'd, he'd just target me anyway. So I took no notice of him. I think that frustrated him more than ever. So. He thought that um, I was ignoring him, <laughs> so it, it uh, made him worse. And uh, I was getting all these messages from these guys, and I just laugh at him and keep going, doing what I what I could do. What are your memories of the uh, 1968 Grand Final? You were runner. I was a runner, and that was the three-point win over Essendon. Oh, it was huge! Um, I didn't think we were going to get there. Um, um, I. I, did, I, I can't remember too much about the last quarter because I was I was I never sat down for two seconds with Brassy telling me these orders and I was one runner at the time and I was running from the back line to the forward line and across the both wings and that sort of thing. I was I think I was more knackered than the players themselves. So, <laughs> so uh, I know it was um, I know it was pretty frantic at the time and it only took one or two kicks and uh, we got over the line. That's, about all I can remember of it. You're obviously in good shape leading the 69 season, having run for Brassy all year. It, you know, obviously put you in good stead. Yeah, enough. Uh, it was frustrating as well, but uh, yeah, it uh, kept me fit for the, uh, the oncoming season, yeah. Sid, can I ask you about preparing for Harry Beitzel's Galar's tour of Ireland, England, North America? Can you tell the story of what actually happened when you sought out a passport for that tour? Well, I, I couldn't get a passport. <laughs> um, I think I only had a week to do that and because um, um, I didn't have a birth certificate. Uh, as I said before, we uh, all had, in the end had to get a stat deck and uh, have a guest at the time through the uh, through the birth, death and, and marriages uh, department that, um, and they could only give us a, a stat deck 
to say, well, I think he was born on such and such a date, and uh, from that I could uh, I could end up getting a passport to go to go to Ireland and uh, play in the Galas with the Galas tour. And that in itself was a fabulous well, tour we, for you. It was um, it was wasn't easy to get the passport either because we had to go to the Prime Minister's office, uh, Foreign Affairs office. Um, um, I think Billy Sneddon was there at the time, and um, and his office uh, arranged for for me to get a passport uh, so I can tour. You were named Carlton's best first year player in 1969, and your career did begin with a bang. You you booted two goals and a best on ground performance on debut against St Kilda at Moorabbin. Yeah, uh, that was also Barry Lawrence's first match. Um, what do you remember of that game? Oh, it was huge. Um, I can remember most of it actually because I um, it was my first game. I ran out there, and I mean, I was eager to play and um, and nervous at the same time because um, you know I think Carlton members and and uh, the committee and the players were ex- you know um, had all these expectations about me, and there was a bit of a bit of pressure going on there, but. Um, so I thought I had better do something, and um, and uh, I think I ended up hitting a few goals that day, um, especially the first couple there. So it was a great debut for Carlton, of course. Sid, through your career, um, did you um, receive a lot of um, racial towards? How did you cope with that? Was it was it was it a lot at that time? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't bother me at all. Um, um, I. I I knew what they were getting up to because <laughs> um, they only did that mostly when I was playing well, and um, and of course the opposition would um, throw anything at you anyway, so it was a normal thing for them to do. I don't think a lot a lot of them meant it, but uh, some did when we started winning and I'm, I'm playing well. Um, you know, got personal with it, and, um, but I use it as a motivation for myself. Um, and uh, if they call me that, they're, they're fools because it uh, just made me um, put my head down and uh, play harder and uh, try and get a few more goals. So, right, so I, that's the way I handle it. I heard Serge Silvani say once that he used to cop it a little bit as well with the Italian link. And, yep. and he always said that if a player was, an opposition player was racially abusing him, he knew that that player didn't have his mind on the game and he had the advantage straight away. Well, that, that's right. That's right. And um, uh, uh, you know, I knew that that was going on as well because. I, and then I'd um, probably uh, well, I was pretty fit at that. I must have run them half forward from one half forward flank to the other, and I'd even run down the wing on the opposite side and uh, say, "What the hell are you bloody well doing? You know, your position's back here." But um, I knew by the three quarter time they're bugging chasing me, so I'd probably have a good run of the session, you know, the last last quarter or so, and, and end up kicking a few goals. And I suppose it must hearten you that in this day and age, you know, they've virtually stamped racism out on the field. It doesn't happen. Yeah, it's it's good, and uh, I mean, you know, since my time, I was probably ten years playing here by myself and uh, as an Aboriginal person, and um, until the crackers and others came along, the narkles and kickets and so on. Um, and um, yeah, I should have copped the whole, whole lot myself, but um, it didn't bother me at all. Um, I, I knew that we were doing that because um, um, I was playing well and I was, uh, you know, giving the opposition a bit of a hard time. 
I think there's more than 80 Indigenous players now playing the Australian Football League. Do you see yourself as a trailblazer in that respect? Yeah, um, particularly now when I, especially the, the guys that followed me from, from, um, from that knew me from, um, particularly from the Perth area, they always said, well, you know, we used to listen to you on the radio and, and follow you when you played over here and, uh, and that type of thing. So I think from that, it uh, influenced a lot of the, the Aboriginal players those days to come have a go themselves. That's a great thing. Now, Sid, the team lost the 1969 grand final to Richmond, so obviously came back into 1970 with a real resolve to, to go better. Um, and, of course, we're talking about one of the most famous grand finals of all time, the 1970 grand final. Um, you had to overcome the report in the 72nd semi, um, strikingly Adamson. Adamson yeah. um, you can remember George oh, yeah. Harris's... <laughs> Did I uh, strike him? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what the reporter said. Yes. <laughs> um, George Harris actually got you to say that um, Lee Adamson had actually racially abused you. It was was it right? And and I think you apologised to Lee Adamson many years later for it. Yeah. Well, um, I shouldn't have probably said anything at all. But um, I think over the years my conscience pricked me a little bit and. Um, I knew Lee Adamson was a good bloke and as a teacher as well when he was still teaching. So, um, don't know whether I should have said, uh, you know, apologise and said sorry about that. But, um, um, but in my own heart, um, I think I, I, from the soft in my own conscience, so I think I did the right thing for him. Um, but um, I got a lot of uh, talking to him from the uh, the old committee and. The, at the time, was Lee Adamson okay about it to, to yep. you? Yeah, I think he had more of an issue with George. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you know how George was very, very uh, vocal and very uh, hard nut sort of thing, and uh, he ran the club that way. And of course, the 1970 grand final, Sid, you were there. Um, I mean, what an incredible game that was! 44 points down, as you said earlier, at half time, yep. and somehow the team found a way. Um, a lot of players have often been asked about. The half-time address. Do you remember what Barassi said when you came in at the main change? Well, I, look, he said, um, um, we're going to um, stop their run-on play. We can't seem to um, catch them there. Right? Got to, we've got to stop their run-on play. So I want you all back line, the handball from the back line and just hold up the play, hold up the play and hang on to the ball from the back line. And um, I think we're just popping it over to each other from the back line and... Uh, there's Collingwood down the forward line and from the centre down, standing there looking at us. So uh, they started coming up and we popped a couple over and, uh, you know, the first, I think we got the first three goals very quickly and then that gave us our momentum and Collingwood ended up chasing us in the end and, um, and they could, couldn't um, keep up that, um, you know, defence situation against us. So um, I think then little Hopkins came on at um, um, the last few minutes and kicked his uh, three or four goals. You kicked a, a magnificent goal in the third quarter in the forward pocket of that game. Do you remember that game, that goal over oh, your shoulder? Very much so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah I, I mean, I practice those all the time around around here at Princess Park, and um, it well, wasn't that hard, but uh, probably looked difficult to a lot of people sitting there watching it. But uh, you know, um, and I couldn't do much else. I mean, there was a lot of you know two players bearing down on me, so I just had to throw them the left foot. And, Kick it back over. It, those two players were 
were running, you know, um, thought the ball was going out as well on the next bounce, but it bounced back in and they just paused that second, which allowed me to, to get the ball and pick it back over my shoulder. It's a great goal. I still remember seeing it. And Sid, the team got over the line after all you'd been through in your life, you know, to, to, to come from Rollins through Bunbury, you know, up to East Perth and then across to Carlton. After all the disappointments you'd had, it must have been a magnificent moment for you. It was. It was uh, not just the 1970 as well, because it, that's, there's two records here. Um, 1970, there was 121,000 people there, and uh, there was 113 at 1972, uh, which was the highest highest score for a grand final uh, still against Richmond. Um, so I'm very proud to be in both of those, uh, and. Um, People probably don't think that as a as a record, but um, they are. Um, uh, for a, for a guy like myself, from coming from the west and coming from a, a out of a mission where uh, sixty kids we grew up uh, idolising and listening to football, local football, and uh, and then um, going playing in the in the towns, and then um, then for myself coming over here through East Perth and uh, playing at Carlton on the, on the biggest stage ever. So uh, you know that's. Um, that's a huge, massive thing for me. Just on the 72 grand final, uh, again, I remember the game well. It was my first grand final. Uh, only a kid of 10 then, Sid. <laughs> but um, do you remember the, you know, how brutal the rivalry was between Carlton and Richmond? What was it about those two teams? They hated each other. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't know what it was, but, um, you know, I, when I first got here, started playing against Richmond, it, just, it was always there um, from... You know, John Nichols down. Um, I had a hatred against Richmond for some reason and, and Collingwood. And um, we sort of played that way. I mean, I don't know what it was. Nothing's changed, Sid. You still hate it. Nothing's changed. Yeah, I, I, I'm still that way a bit, but um, I, I'm a bit softened, softened a little bit now because I think, well, if the, if a team plays well now, they deserve to win, and I think that's the way I see it now. When your career came to an end to Carlton, Sid, what did you do? Did you return to Western Australia? No, I actually uh, uh, had a 12-year career in um, uh, with the public service. I was always in the state public service here um, and went to uh, invitation of the great late Charlie Perkins, who was the secretary of the Department of uh, Aboriginal Affairs in those days, and I went there worked on Aboriginal programs and, uh, and training programs in, in Canberra. What sort of a man was Charles Perkins? Oh, uh, very forthful, uh, you know, forthright uh, in his convictions, and uh, very a great man, an advocate for Aboriginal people and any anyone that was downtrodden. He uh, he wasn't um, afraid to get up and say what he thought about uh, if it, what, things went went right, and um, and uh, I admire him very much. And uh, he was a great man. He looked after a lot of people in Canberra that worked under his department, and. Uh, you know, he'll be remembered for that as a, as a great champion for our cause. And it'd be remiss of me not to ask you about Sir Douglas Nichols. You knew Sir Doug? Well, Sir Doug was uh, our, our chairperson on our sports uh, sports committee in Canberra and uh, wished to fly back and forth. And uh, and we were we became great mates, uh, Sir Doug and I, and uh, we worked under Charlie in Canberra under those sports, uh, you know, uh, committees. And uh, uh, I worked with Sir Doug here in, 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 in Melbourne. Under the, under the program here for the uh, Aboriginal Advancement League uh, group that uh, 
looked after Aboriginal people in Melbourne here. Mm-hmm. There must be so much that can be done to help the cause of the Indigenous people. If you, if you had uh, the power to make a decision that would help the cause of the Indigenous people, what would it be? Uh, I think that uh, we, we've got to empower them. They've got to empower themselves. I think we've got such uh, good uh, leaders around now um, that uh, good advocates around. Uh, we've got good department, uh, good um, organisations to set up. Uh, we've got the Yorta Yorta people. We've got the Aboriginal Advancement League here, and we've got some good people there. You know, putting up good programs and um, advocating for our future. So we're going pretty well, and. Uh, We've got a lot of good things going on. A lot of people think that uh, Aboriginal people, are, they hear the worst things about that and uh, we've got some very good programs and making good headway. You're very much respected amongst the senior players here at Carlton City, particularly Eddie Betts. I think Eddie refers to you as uncle. Yeah. <laughs> and Chris well, Yarren, yeah. Chris Yarren and mm-hmm. Jeffrey Garlett, Garlett yeah. Walker. You know, you yeah, follow their careers with interest. Absolutely. They, but they don't know it, but I'm, uh, I'm watching every move they make and watch every game they play, so... Uh, um, I don't ring them so much, so, but uh, I, I should really. But uh, we've got a game of golf coming up soon, so I hope to catch up with them soon. Here's the swing, still good. I can beat uh, those guys anyway. <laughs> um, no problem there. <laughs> and Sid, in winding up, um, I put to you a question that I put to every guest that we have on the program. What does Carlton actually mean to you? Uh, it's, it's, it's become. Um, it's become my sort of a um, stepping. It was my stepping board and my foundation now, and uh, I think that uh, what Carlton Football Clubs to me has put me on a uh, a good journey and a good road, and uh, put me on a pedestal a little bit, which I don't want to be on. Um, but that's what the club does for you, and uh, um, I'm just be very honoured uh, that I was able to give them a chance to play here. Sid, we're honoured to have you here telling your story today. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are really going to appreciate your journey. And it's still going, which is fantastic. It's still going, yes. I haven't finished yet. And a lot of, a lot of, a lot of kids uh, over in Perth that, uh, that's training under our program, there's some good footballers there too. So we might get a few of those that have uh, taken my, you know, put them on my journey and they might end up here at Carlton as well. And as we finish, Sid, the sun's shining, so it's probably followed you across from Budbury, which is a good thing. Oh, that's good. Sid, thanks very much. Uh, lovely to see you again, and I'm sure we'll see you again soon. To Luca Ganano, thanks very much for um, uh, working the panel today for our history, and we'll be back shortly with uh, another guest in the series of podcasts for the Carlton Football Club. Thank you.